And also, you know, they've done studies where they compare, uh, quote, a, a threshold type um, training intervention, which is a lot of time in zone three. Threshold in research means between the two lactate turn points, LT1 and LT2. It's not quite what we think of as cyclists when we think of threshold. It's a little bit different. It's, it's sort of what you're talking about here where you're doing a lot of time in zone three um, versus, you know, polarized or pyramidal. And almost always, in fact, I don't know a study that threshold method is better than a polarized or pyramidal method. Polarized or pyramidal comes out on top. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Matchbox Podcast powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and today we're getting into high-volume training camps, the temptations of tempo riding, and single-speed specificity. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. I'm heading down to Belgian Waffle Ride, Arizona this week, and thanks to Flow, packing my nutrition was a breeze. Between high-carb drink mixes, electrolyte replacements, recovery formulas, and more, Flow has everything you need for fueling your training and racing this season, so head over to flowformulas.com today and use the discount code IgnitionPodcast for 10% off your next order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, send those to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, The Matchbox Podcast, or hit us up on Instagram. All right, let's get into it. All right, so Dylan, so you said you fielded a question that you want to kick us off with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll start with, uh, here, I got to pull it up. I should have had it ready. <laughs> We're going to start with it. You got you to be ready. To- <laughs> I know. Uh, all right, it's from... Uh, this is from Gloria. It's it's quite long, so and I, okay. I think that it's about it's somewhat related to training camps. I think. All right. Um, as I don't race, I just want to spend as much time as possible on the bike when I go to uh, Majorca. Is that how you pronounce it, Majorca? Yep. Yeah. Um, so she's going to go to Majorca, and she. You know, she's going to have all the time in the world to ride and she's wanting, wondering what she should do at that time. Thought it might be a good idea to do 14 days of high volume, but all easy zone two rides over the past three weeks. I've been training 20 hours per week during the semester. I usually do 12 to 15 hours per week on Zwift only. That's a lot of time on Zwift. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, With two interval days a week and one complete rest day a week. Everyone tells me that Zwift is way harder than riding outside as you have to pedal constantly and that I might be able to do 30 plus hours per week. Uh, do you think that might be realistic? So that's the first part of the question. So we can, uh, I'll, I'll just read the whole question. If okay. so, would you recommend doing fairly constant amount of riding time a day, adding in one rest day a week or uh, what I think would make more sense from a training perspective, still have easier, shorter days and uh, queen stages in between. So I think what she means by that is like having, you know, having some shorter days, but then having days where she's just like, I don't know, does like an eight or nine hour ride or something. Right. Um, and how would you stack them up? As I've, uh, as I'll be in Italy to watch Strada Bianchi and Torino Adriatico, uh, for the next week, I won't be able to ride at all. Um, so I have a rest week after three weeks of fairly high volume, as I wrote 20 hours per week. When I come back to Germany, I'll have five days left until we depart for the Island. Uh, to you, do you think it's best to continue my usual training and getting in at least one high 
intensity day before I leave? Or do you think some kind of taper week with only a little leg activation would be a wiser choice? All right, that's it. There's a lot there. (laughs) There is a lot there. (laughs) So remind me when she wants to do this 14-day high volume. So she'll be there for 14 days. um, And that is, and she is on a rest week where she's basically not riding at all right now, even though she's been doing 20 hours per week for the last three weeks. And um, when she gets, so she's going to get back home and she'll have five days before she, she goes on this 14 day training camp basically. And so she, her question is what, what does she want? What does she want to do with those five days before she goes? And then when she's there, what does she want to do with those 14 days? Okay. So, so to summarize, so three weeks, high volume at 20 hours a week, but that's standard training with some intensity mm-hmm. thrown in. Then a complete rest week. Then she now has basic 20 hours per week does sound like it's a little bit higher than she normally does. She did say her normal training volume is 12 to 15. So right. she's right. probably going to be quite fatigued after the last three weeks, but she does yeah. have a full week of hardly riding at all to recover from that. Yep. And then five days at home and then two weeks on the island. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, let's, I would say let's start with how, how she should structure her two weeks first. Yeah. My gut is to say, if you're in a spot that's known for cycling and it's beautiful and, you know, you're going to want to just ride your bike. So I kind of agree with just high volume during those two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. And then... I would say for the five days before, probably do two intensity sessions while also keeping the volume really low. So have, you know, hour and a half intensity sessions and a lot of hour easy recovery rides. And then, so you're kind of getting rest, but you're still getting the intensity that you're probably not going to get there. Yeah, I, I don't think I would. So I think once you're there, because your volume is going to be so high, you probably, I would probably just do zone two, like you're saying. Um, and with that in mind, I think it would be a good idea to get in a little bit of intensity before that, because otherwise it's going to be four weeks of no intensity. If you include the rest week, then the time at home, then the two weeks there. Um, so I think a little bit of intensity and lower volume before she leaves is probably makes sense. And I wouldn't leave for this trip in a fatigued state. I would leave for this trip Mm. feeling pretty fresh and ready to do a lot of riding. Right. Yeah, so I mean, she said she doesn't race. Which, first of all, <clears throat> Gloria, we got to get you in some bike racing if you're training that much. Oh yeah, for <laughs> that's sure, crazy. that's a good point. Um, but maybe you just don't want to race bikes, and that's fine too. But um, you know, this Mallorca trip sounds like this would be the equivalent of your race. So I totally agree. Like, you want to come into that as fresh as possible. As far as like the intensity goes, the week before, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the like the goal for you. You know, like if this Mallorca trip mm-hmm. is like really like the thing that you're kind of prepping for, um, I don't know. To me, it seems kind of like the, the even the intensity in the week before isn't really all that relevant. Like the main thing is just coming in as fresh as possible. Um, you know, like the main reason for doing intensity in like the week leading up to a, you know, a taper week leading up to an event would be so that you're sharp for those race type efforts. But if you're not going to be doing race type efforts for two weeks anyways, then the intensity only is going to potentially put you in more of a state of fatigue, which could 
come at a detriment, you know, for, for your writing in Majorca. So I would just be cautious with those. If you're going to do the intensity sessions, keep them short and sweet, you know, like something, I don't know what you kind of, what volume or, I mean, what energy system you've been training recently, but you know, something like a three by three VO two would be like a simple short and sweet kind of tune up type workout. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do too, too much intensity in that week before. Um, yeah, sort of like probably a have ta- a day of, of yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and there'll probably be a travel day in there too. I'm guessing where you'll, you know, you'll take a, a day off before you get to the Island and start riding maybe two days or something. Um, but yeah, even in, you know, in that five day period, even if you just put one intensity session in just to kind of prime your system a little bit, um, I think that'd be plenty. Yeah. Uh, and so, Let's get back to what she should actually be doing during the two weeks, though. Um, yep. So she does say she does most of her riding on Zwift right now, which I, I got to say, it's super impressive that you're doing 20 hours per week on Zwift. <laughs> Dude, um, I did. I did like 14 hours on the trainer like last week and mm-hmm. I'm wrecked from it. Yeah. Like it, it, so it what, do, what do you guys think about what she said about how? people are telling her that riding on the trainer is way harder than riding outside. So if she's been doing 20 hours per week, she could probably handle 30 hours per week when she gets there. Mm, I, I, I hesitate to, to agree with that. Yeah. I am saying it's still 30 hour. It's still an additional 10 hours of exercising time. Like the, the, the relative training stress inside is, is maybe a little higher than outside, but that's, that's also like, that, that can also be kind of skewed too, because outside you're going to naturally have like, you know, some, uh, you know, stochastic efforts and, you know, a little bit higher peaks and, you know, it's not going to be quite as consistent, but like, you, you know, the efforts are gonna be a little more polarized outside, even if you're trying to stay in like zone two. So I don't know, like, honestly, like even for me, like when I tr- train inside versus outside, actually my TSS ends up being a little bit lower inside usually. Um, Cause I'm just like, I can hit 200 for three straight hours. Um, yeah. And, and it, I don't know, to it me also, it's time is time. Like it, it might be, it, it might be harder. Like it might feel harder, but it's, it, it doesn't equate to like longer. It's not like running where like, if you, if you right. go run for an hour, that's like, you know, the energy equivalent of riding two or three hours. It's not quite like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's mentally harder. Yeah. Dude, I don't know. I, it it depends too on the type of workouts you're doing. Like if you're just zoning out and just watching TV for four hours, that's not really that mentally challenging. Like, but if you're looking at a wall for four hours while you're doing, you know, threshold intervals, <laughs> that can be pretty challenging. So like, it really yeah. depends on the, the type of workouts you're doing. And just, I mean, it sounds like she's well adapted to the trainer. If she can handle that much trainer time, then to me, it yeah, seems like the, sure. the trainer's not a problem for her. Yeah. And she's doing these rides on Swift. Um, I said that, uh, just a little side note. I heard this rumor that Eddie Merckx would do like five hour trainer rides, staring at a brick wall with, with no music or anything just to work on his mental toughness. He would just stare at a brick wall for five hours. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that too. I think it was on the, I think I, I heard that it was on the rollers too. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> it was even worse. Um, yeah. I, people- putting a treadmill against the wall. So many people do that and I don't understand it. Like that makes you, that's just unnatural to feel like you're running into a wall. I I can count the number of times on one hand that I've ran on a treadmill in my life. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, so 
personally, I think that the the whole idea that trainer time is worth more than outdoor time is tenuous. Um, and is is uh, like I know a lot of people have these equations. Like if you've done one hour on the trainer, that's equivalent to an hour and a half outside or two hours outside or whatever. Um, I think what Adam's saying about time is time. I I, I agree with that. Um, I know. It, so I, know it's I think I I think. I think where that stems from is when looking at the quality of the workout. Mm-hmm. So like if you look at a two hour trainer workout, like that might be equivalent to like, like the quality that can, well, that can get I, baked I into think, a two hour ride I might be equivalent argu- to go ahead. Yeah. I, I think the argument is that you, you don't stop pedaling when you're on the trainer. Whereas when you're outside, you do stop pedaling. Right. Right. So I feel yeah. like she must live in a place with a lot of elevation change because that sounds like what, somebody would say who's from like you know well she lives really in Germany. hilly hilly area that's used to mm-hmm. coasting the downhills oh yeah or or like spot. an urban area if she if she's yeah. in some kind of city or yeah. something yeah. yeah i think we've talked about this on the podcast uh but you know when people say like oh i can get in such a you know such a high quality workout inside and i can't you know the quality is better inside and this and that uh, personally and I, and I don't, I don't tell this to my athletes if they need a ride inside, but I'm just saying for me personally, never in a million years would I ever consider doing an intensity workout inside. <laughs> um, just because like, I know that if I were to do that, the, my, my power would be like 20 Watts lower, but I'm also not used to riding inside. So there's that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> so also it, even if riding indoors is a little bit harder than riding outdoors, it's not, it's not 10 hours Mm -hmm. uh, worth of training harder. You know what I mean? So, uh, but the other thing that you got to keep in mind here is I think you're basically trying to make this a training camp, which means you're, you're trying to do more volume than you typically do going to 30 hours, I think is a little bit risky because 20 hours is already higher than you normally do. You say you normally ride 12 to 15 and I don't, you should pay attention to how your body feels. I would shoot more for the 25 hour range. Probably. Um, That question makes me think of another question that just, I have in general at that volume, what is a healthy amount of uh, volume increase like percentage wise in a week? And they always say with running, like, you know, I wouldn't go over 20% increase in your mileage from week to week. Yeah. I mean, I think 20% is a lot. Yeah. I, I mean, usually it, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that when you, I, I think that regardless of what, probably at that point that you're at 20 hours per week, I wouldn't go more than a two hour increase per week unless you have a history of, training and you're so for example if somebody has a history of riding 25 hours per week and then they just came off their off season where they where they've ridden 10 hours per week you don't need to start them off at 12 right you don't need to go 12 14 16 you can jump straight to like 18 because they have a history but if they have no history of riding 20 hours per week then i would do small increments i would do you know 20 20 22 24 Two hour, two hour per week, weekend increments is probably what I would do there. Yeah. Um, and that's, what's hard with this is she's already done the equivalent of a training camp with her three weeks high volume. I mean, that's like, yeah, she, she's already increasing it by 25, 30% for three yeah. weeks, which is a lot. Right. 
Um, so that's and, where I say in like that, that, you know, be cautious with that, f- those five days. Like if, if you need more time to recover before you go into that super high volume again, like, you know, don't overdo it in those five weeks or five days. Um, but at the same time to go two weeks without riding and then jump back into 30 hours. Yeah. That also seems probably. Yeah, sure. I, I would probably shoot for around the 25 hour range. And as far as doing like, should you just do, you know, sort of big rides every day or have shorter days and then one super long day or two super long days in the week? Um, see, here's the thing. You're not training for it for anything specific. Like I, I, my answer to this would be tailor it to what you're training for, but you're not you're not racing. Um I don't see any reason why you can't just base your riding schedule off of the weather there. I mean, it could be nice every single day and that's not an issue, but I am assuming there's going to be some rain days and stuff where it just makes sense to do shorter rides. And if it's a absolutely gorgeous day, then go out for a super long one. Um, and I don't think that it matters so much as long as the volume at the end of the week is, is what you want it to be, which is, I'm, I'm saying probably around 25 hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I wish I had a little bit more insight into like what the overall goal of, of the Mallorca trip was. If it's truly just to go mm-hmm. down there and get a ton of riding in, I wouldn't even like set a standard for yourself. Like, you know, if, if you, if you feel really good and you get three, four, five days of, you know, five hours in a row, like, and you feel fine, like, then that's fine. But like, if you get a couple days in and you're like, ah, I, kind of want to go to the beach or like, you know, just have a day in town. Like that's fine too. Um, you know, but it also, it, it all comes back to like what your goal for the trip is. But yeah, if it's just a riding trip, I mean, I, I wouldn't set too much of a standard for yourself. Like not to like, I mean, I don't, I don't want that to sound bad, but like, just, just don't structure it, you know, kind of, yeah. Like Dylan's saying like, go with the weather. I mean, the, I, I just looked up the weather and it looks like the weather is going to be like sunny and 60 degrees Fahrenheit pretty much every right. day. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, sounds like you can kind of cater it to whatever, whatever you want. Um, I, I think, I think it's, it's a lot easier to recover from two or three stacked on days of like four to five hours than throwing like one nine or 10 hour day in there. Um, those bigger days come at a much bigger toll and are going to be tougher to recover from. Maybe save that for like the second half of the second week. You know, like when Mm -hmm. you're feeling good and like there's like a huge ride that you want to go do, like save that for the end. Um, But I definitely wouldn't put that in the first week. Yeah, I would hate for you to do even just within that first week, 30 hours and then be absolutely smashed for the next week and then not be able to ride as much. So kind of. Yeah, unless there's cool stuff to do off the bike and you just like smash the first week and then. (laughs) The other thing I'll say too is that I think some people get into these training camps and they they just feel like they need to hit this crazy number of hours. And what I will say is that if you get to the point, if you get to a point where you're so fatigued that even doing zone two is a challenge and you feel like you're just dragging on the bike and, and you know, you're, it's, you know, your heart rate is not responding and, and all of this, you're probably doing more damage than benefit at that point. And the time you're doing, the time it's going to take you to recover is exponentially increasing for very minimal return, if that makes sense. Right. Um, once you get to that point. So don't be afraid to just take a rest day if that is the case. For sure. 
Yeah. And, and one, one kind of last option would be to just take, you know, you've done three weeks on the trainer, high volume, but with, with some intensity too. your first week down there, you could just do another one of those weeks, but just do it outside. It's more enjoyable. You get to see like some fitness improvement, um, see how your body's responding to that. You know, instead of like making this huge leap in volume, like if you just did that, replicated that same thing, then you'd get to like, I don't know, slam up some climbs too, which might be fun. Um, you know, and, and that's an option too. And then maybe that second week, if you're feeling good, like then that's, that's your bigger volume week. Cool. All right. Nice. Yeah. Good luck, Gloria. Let us know how it goes. Enjoy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this next one here is, uh, could potentially be a deep dive. Let's see how it goes. So this one has to do with tempo. All right. Uh, so this one came in through the ignition, uh, Instagram page and I don't have their name, but if you're listening, you know who you are. Uh, so it says, if you have a limit on your time, let's say 10 hours a week, what is the problem with doing more zone three work out of a seven zone model? I can see for someone with a training load of a pro that avoiding becoming overly fatigued is very important and therefore plenty of zone two is necessary. For the last four weeks, I have shifted my training to predominantly zone three with some zone four and five intensity and the improvement in my fitness and perceived and measured are significant compared to the pyramidal approach I was using before. I am monitoring my fatigue, but don't see a reason to change this unless I see a negative trend. My first thought is how many weeks have you been doing this? But I yeah, it's a, what, does he, does he say how many, um, weeks? I mean, it says he's, he's been doing four weeks with this like zone three, four and five training. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Caitlin brings up a great point with, and, and I'm assuming that what she's getting at is that if you continue to do this for long enough, it's going to come crashing down at some point and you're going to feel burnt out and overtrained. And I don't know if one month is long enough to see that, even if that isn't the case, even if uh, you see greater fitness gains with this like zone three and avoid, you know, uh, basically instead of, you're essentially what you're doing is you're replacing your zone two with zone three. So I, what I would say to that is that I can only tell you what the, the research says and the research goes against that method. And in fact, they've, they've done studies where they, they, it's interesting because it's almost like these groups naturally, um, like for example, they'll tell, they'll tell riders in a study, okay, when you're not doing intensity, just stick to zone two. Right. And they have their power files so they can see if they actually did that. And, and it almost becomes, uh, they can see how well the riders actually did that because as a lot of people who try to stick to zone two know, sometimes that can actually be quite challenging, especially if you're riding outside and they can look and see how well these riders did that. And then how that relates to how they performed in their tests before and after the, the study intervention. And they find that the, the better that riders stick to that prescription of staying in zone two when they need to, the more fitness gains they make. Um, and also, you know, they've done studies where they compare, uh, quote, a, a threshold type um, training intervention, which is a lot of time in zone three. Threshold in research means between the two lactate turn points, LT1 and LT2. It's not quite what we think of as cyclists when we think of threshold. It's a little bit different. It's it's sort of what you're talking about here, where you're doing a lot of time in zone three um, versus, you know, polarized or pyramidal. And 
almost always. In fact, I don't know a study that that suggests that threshold is better. Uh, the threshold method is better than a polarized or pyramidal method. Polarized or pyramidal comes out on top. So I'm just telling you that that is what the research suggests. Now, I, I get comments on my YouTube channel all the time, obviously, and I'll and I'll I'll scroll through them just to see what people are saying. And and I do get comments on my videos like. Oh, the sweet spot pr- approach worked the best for me. Like this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Like I, I did sweet spot. I got fitter. There's always going to be anecdotes of people who did better with this approach that the research seems to say isn't the better approach. And I'm not saying, and if you are that person, I'm not saying that you should abandon what is working for you just to do what the research says. You should do what works for you, but um, I guess I guess what I'm getting at here is the approach that you're uh, that you're suggesting is not is not what the research suggests optimal training looks like. And there's always there's always anecdotes, but I I don't like to base my opinion off of individual anecdotes. I like to base it off of research. And, and Dylan, so the the research studies that you're referencing, what is the the time duration that they're uh, observing those individuals for? The shortest studies are usually a month, and then the longest ones can be three months, usually. Okay, so still pretty short term in in the scope of like a season. Um, yeah, and, and then, that's that's what I was going to add here is you know uh, I don't I don't know this individual's name, but they're they're seeing fitness gains four weeks into this training program, which I mean that could make sense. It depends on the quality of your training. You know, you said you're following a pyramidal approach before this. Um, like you were saying, Dylan, it depends on the, the quality of which you were able to hit those zones within that pyramidal approach. Um, but also like you are doing a little bit more work, like there's more work capacity involved, uh, higher training s- stress and so on. So like in the acute phase, like you're going to see some, maybe some results. Um, but the interesting thing that Dylan's talking about here is like, even in those, those, let's say four week studies, they're still showing that the better quality you have of zone two riding, or if you are able to hit the even the pure, pyramidal um, training structure, even in the short term, it's showing benefit more benefit than the threshold approach. So that goes back to like, what is the quality of your training in the other models? You know, if you're doing pyramidal or polarized. Yeah, and and I'd like to point out too, because because this guy uh, says that or 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 Gail, I don't, or, I don't know. Or, yeah. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> this person says that um, uh, that they only have ten hours per week to train, and they understand that if you have twenty or thirty hours per week to train, that that zone two makes sense. But if you only have ten hours, and and this is the trap that time crunch cyclists fall into, right? Um, they say, "Oh, I don't have that much time per week to train, so every time I get on the bike, I need to smash it." Uh, they have done that study. They have done study with studies and, and the, the people in this study had less time per week to train than you have. They were looking at people who have six hours per week to train and still polarized came out on top. So I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that that is definitive proof, but it is evidence to suggest that even if you are time crunch, a polarized or pyramidal method is probably preferred. Yeah. So, and I, and I think, I think what it comes down to is the frequency at which you're hitting those, you know, we'll call them higher intensity sessions, uh, versus like the total duration of which you're doing. So, um, you know, like if you're training 30 hours a week, but you're only doing two or three intensity sessions a week that you're, you're, you're triggering that those 
you know, your autonomic nervous system two or three times a week, hopefully, like if you're doing the rest of your training appropriately. If you're only training six to 10 hours a week, but you're doing two to three intensity sessions a week, you're still triggering your autonomic nervous system two to three times a week. So it's that frequency versus the overall volume. And what you do with the rest of the time is just trying to uh, avoid triggering your nervous system. So, so it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't turn, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, turn into this heightened state when, when, when it's, triggered. yeah, I mean, you just, you don't want to stress if, if you're, if you're constantly living in a, in a stress response every single day, uh, of your life, you're gonna crash at some point. <laughs> right. Right. Um, they do and maybe call this you- method of, they do call this method of training like no man's land for a reason. Yeah. I mean, and, and maybe you haven't hit that point yet. And, and by the way, if, if like, like I said, if this is something that is working for you, I'm not saying stop doing it. If it's working for you, just to, just to please, I don't know, researchers, uh, like do what works for you. But you know, maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't hit the point of burnout and fatigue yet. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if you do this method long enough, if you eventually hit that point. Like you had said before, like everyone responds differently and maybe he had, or she had hit a plateau at one point and the body is highly adaptable. And like, I love the quote, if you always do, you always what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So like, this is some type of new stimulus for him or her and they're seeing results, but yeah, you can't negate the research. Like at what point, is it going to turn? And then you're going to be digging yourself into a hole that takes two weeks to get out of, which it's not going to be worth it in the end. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll throw a personal anecdote in here. I, when I was kind of early into uh, like racing at the elite level, I was self-coached using online popular online training platform. And I followed like a high volume sweet spot training plan for my whole base season you know, 10 to 12 hours a week, tons of sweet spot tempo work. Um, and I came in like springtime, like I was super fit and like felt good, but by July I was totally roasted. Um, and, and unfortunately like that was like the time when I was like trying to like include more specific, like higher intensity training, like that was more critical to the race performances. Um, but I just like couldn't even do it. And I had to take like, you know, mid season break, uh, spontaneously and like bounce back, but like not nearly as strong. And like, I ended up like my season was like toast after that, you know? So like, and that's where we're talking about like the trap you fall into. Like you can see some, uh, you know, near term acute adaptations and like that seems appealing in the moment, but it's, it's the long term view that you have to keep in mind. Um, you know, is it coming at the detriment to your second half of the season potentially? So just something to be mindful of, um, you know, as you're continuing on with this. Yeah. Okay. What do you think? We got one more. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay. So this one's about single speed specific training. So one comes from Aiden. Oh boy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Should be fun. Uh, Hey all, I'm a big fan of the podcast of both podcasts. I currently only ride my single speed mountain bike and I don't have space or desire for more bikes at the moment. How would you structure training with a single speed? I currently ride six to eight hours a week and do a lot of what my wife, a lot of that with my wife on gravel rides. It's also mm-hmm. worth noting that I work a manual labor job, which may impact being able to add on more volume. I appreciate your thoughts, Aiden. Okay. Dylan, have you ever raced single speed? 
Yeah, I did. I raced, uh, okay. really? I raced single speed a lot back when I was a teenager. I thought it was super cool. <laughs> and then I grew out of it. It's still cool, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it is cool. It's still cool, for sure. Um, all right. So wh- what is he asking specifically here? Um, he's just, he's just curious. Like he only has a single speed bike. So, which is probably different from when you were a teenager, like you might've had other bikes to train on. He only has one bike and it's a single speed mountain bike. So he's wondering like, how should he structure training with just that, you know, single speed bike? Um, like how could you go? Yeah. Well, if you can, I mean, hook- what were you going to say, Caitlin? Well, if you hook that thing up to a trainer, I mean, like it's not a limiter at all. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say that I don't see any reason why you have to structure your training any differently. To be honest with you, the only difference yeah. really is going to be the fact that you're either going to have be riding at a very low cadence while you're climbing or a very high cadence while you're on the flats, which is perfect for single speed training anyway. Because if you want to get good at riding a single speed, you need that cadence range. Um, I don't, I don't. I personally, I don't see, I don't see any need to change your training just because you're on a single speed, unless you were, if, if the situation was, I am training for a single speed race and I don't even have a single speed, what should I do? Right. (laughs) Which I don't know why somebody would do that, but what should I do? Then this, that would maybe be a scenario where I would say, okay, like you might want to do some cadence intervals. Like I, I usually don't recommend cadence intervals, but it would be so important for this supposed situation that probably no one is in. Um, but if you're riding just a single speed all the time, you're naturally going to have that in your training. Right. Yeah. I think, I think Aiden's in like the ideal spot with that. Um, like I, I've had a couple athletes that I've coached who raced single speeds, but you know, trained on geared bikes or had multiple gear bikes. And that's mm-hmm. usually the, 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 the difficult part is um, getting them with to spend enough time on their single speed so that when mm-hmm. it comes to race day, they know what those efforts feel like. They know how to climb at 50 RPMs up a technical, you know, rocky climb or hop off their bike and run if they need to. So like, I'll usually try and, you know, include single speed specific workouts, but they're not, it's not the structure of the workout. It's that I'm requesting you ride your single speed bike for that workout. Even if that means like, you know, you're doing a four minute climb and you do have to like hop off and run for 30 seconds because you hit like a super steep section or something like that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like that's simulating what you're going to do in the race anyways. But, um, you know, it's like, I'm okay if the, if the structure of the workout is a little bit compromised because you're on one gear. Uh, the important thing is like, you're getting that race specific, like training in with that bike. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think for Aiden and, and like you mentioned, Caitlin, he, you know, he says he doesn't have the space or a desire for more bikes, but he might have space for a trainer, you know, and, and if you can get a smart trainer, which you can get smart trainers for pretty reasonable, especially right now, they're all like blowing out their, their inventory. Um, you know, for like 400 bucks, you can get a smart trainer and just throw that bad boy in whatever room you've got space for. And now all of a sudden you've got infinite gears. Um, and that could be helpful just for certain types of workouts. It depends on what your, what terrain you've got at your disposal too. Like if you live somewhere that's hilly, then it's probably not a problem because you can get some longer, uh, intensity sessions in with, with hills. But if you don't have hills then that could be pretty challenging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I also have to say, you know, strength training is important for any cyclist, but I think especially for single speed racers, because it can be pretty hard on the body. So yeah. Yeah. Climbing it. Yeah. I don't know if it's like the chicken (laughs) and 
or the egg thing or whatever, but it does seem like most like single speeders are ripped, <laughs> like mm-hmm. huge calves, huge legs, mm-hmm. pretty strong upper body. And I don't know if it's like those type of people just gravitate towards a single speed or if over time they build that physique because they're riding single speed. I don't know, but um, I do agree. Yeah. I, 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 there's you know a lot of those high torque situations where you're stressing your um, you know posterior chain like a ton. So yeah, I think I think strength is important for single speed. Back when I raced the single speed, I weighed 110 pounds. So, <laughs> but I was also well, maybe like, why, maybe that's why I didn't work out for you, Dylan. <laughs> I was also like 15 <laughs> years old. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. Uh, cool. Nice. Should we call it there? 37 minutes? Yes. I think so. That was a good one. All right. Yep. Next week we'll get Drew back on. Yeah, hopefully. All right. We'll see you guys. Yeah. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch y'all soon. Let's go! never driven a rally car before, but I'd imagine there are a lot of similarities between racing rally cars and racing bikes. Both involve speed, skill, and suspense. But one big difference is the navigator. The navigator's job is to communicate with the driver what turns are coming up, the severity of those turns, and any obstacles to look out for on course. With the help of the navigator, the driver goes faster. As athletes, we too need a navigator. This is where the coach comes into the picture. Like the navigator, the coach helps guide the athlete along the right path. When it's all said and done, the coach helps the athlete go faster. To take the analogy one step further, I'd bet the best navigators are those who used to drive themselves. Because of their own experience behind the wheel, they're better equipped to help the driver. 
This is what Ignition Coach Co. is all about. All of our coaches are elite level racers, and that makes them better coaches. They know how to train, how to prep, how to win, how to lose, and how to stay focused through it all because they are in the midst of that pursuit right now. Here at Ignition Coach Co., we believe that coaching and racing go hand in hand, and it's our goal to fuse those two things together. We'd love to connect you with one of our coaches. Sign up for a free consultation today. Ignition Coach Co., developing coaches, connecting athletes.